0: Years ago, when I was working nights for UPS at the airport in Louisville, Kentucky, I was training a new coworker of mine to uh, drive one of those little tug tractors that you see at the airports that are used to uh, transport uh, cargo around the airport. At the time, I was in my early to mid-twenties, and I would estimate that this man that I was training was about ten years or so older than me. He had a background with aircraft and was hoping eventually to become an aircraft mechanic for UPS. But if you've seen one of those tug tractors at an airport, you may have noticed that the cabs are very small. And so you've got two grown men sitting in a cab and we got to know each other a little bit. And he told me uh, some crazy stories about his dad, about how his dad had flown drugs for Air America in connection with the CIA during the Vietnam era and how one time when his dad was was flying, the uh, hydraulics on the landing gear didn't come out, and so his dad was able to unscrew something there in the cockpit and dump a bottle of soda down and get the landing gear to retract. I don't know how that works, but those of you who know anything about aircraft, maybe you do. All I heard was just the story. But at one point, this man told me, how at a younger stage in his life he had sold drugs to help get himself established financially. I don't know if it was to pay for college or to help him buy a house or just to build up a bit of a nest egg or what, but at any rate he sold that he had sold drugs for a time and then had moved on, put that part of his life behind him. He wasn't doing that anymore, he just did it to kinda kinda help himself out and get ahead. And when I gave some pushback on the the morality, the rightness of him selling drugs, he asked, well, doesn't God want me to better myself? In other words, wasn't it right that he was doing that? Doesn't God want him to get ahead in life and to further his prospects? And in reply, I said to him something to the effect of, not at any price. The point is that we can't simply take a general goal that is Maybe okay in and of itself, and then think that we can do whatever we want to do, whatever we need to do to accomplish that goal just because the the end goal is okay and to put an even finer point on it, what we 'll find in our text this morning in Genesis sixteen is that we must not suppose in our pursuits even of god 's purposes and our pursuits even of god 's promises that the end justifies the means it doesn 't the Ends do not justify the means. And so let's look at the text. Genesis chapter 16. Moses writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, "'May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me.' But Abram said to Sarai, "'Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight.' So Sarai treated her harshly. She fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer lihai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now as we look at this chapter this morning, we will do so under two main headings. First of all, a good goal does not justify the means. A good goal does not justify the means. And secondly, submit to the Lord even in difficult circumstances. Submit to the Lord even in difficult in difficult circumstances. And so, first of all, a good goal does not justify the means. And I think as we begin looking at Genesis 16, it will be helpful for us to start by recognizing our own dispositions, our own convictions, and our own knowledge of subsequent events in the Genesis narrative, and take a step back from those and look at things for a little bit from the perspective of Abram and Sarai. And I think this will be helpful in two ways. First, it will help us to understand their circumstances and their situation from their point of view and therefore why they acted as they did. And secondly, once we have tried to understand from their perspective, understand things and have understood the sin which were committed, which was committed, that will hopefully help us to see ways in which we can do much the same thing as they did. I think when we look at this passage as Bible-believing Christians, I think we can be a little bit too quick to shake our heads disdainfully and say to Abram, what were you thinking? That was dumb. And then just keep moving on as if what he said and did here was completely inconceivable, completely inconceivable even to him. How could Abram imagine that this was even anywhere in the realm of being a reasonable idea? and knowing as we do the law of God and his prescriptions and intentions for marriage, knowing how eventually Isaac was born as the son who was given to Abram in answer to the promises he received, we may not stop and consider what precisely Abram and Sarai were thinking here. We need to consider that. And we might also not stop to think how we might potentially fall into the same trap that they did. And we need to stop and consider that as well. Abram had the promise from Genesis 12, 3 that he would be the father of a great nation. He believed that promise. He believed, as we saw last week in, in Genesis 15, that a descendant from his own body would be his heir. That was what that conversation between the Lord and Abram in Genesis 15 was all about. He said, Eliezer of Damascus will be my heir. And the Lord said, No, one coming from your own body will be your heir. And he believed that. He, the Lord took him out and showed him the stars of the sky and said that his descendants would be as numerous as them. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But then, there's the reality on the ground. Sarai was barren. That was told to us in the text as early as Genesis 11, verse 30. Sarai rightly says here in verse 2 that the Lord had prevented her from bearing children. She acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign over the womb, that he opens it and closes it according to his will. And she was right about that. That was her situation in life. There was also the reality that the subsequent revelation that Sarah would be the mother of the promised seed had not yet been revealed. That was a piece of revelation that Abram and Sarah did not have at this point. That was not given until Genesis 17. See it in Genesis 17, verse 16, Genesis 17, verse 19. For all that Abram and Sarai knew at this point, the promised seed could well have been the son of Abram and another woman. And then there was also the reality that in the culture of the day, this type of thing that Sarai suggested was practiced and allowed. And you see this explicitly in some of the ancient law codes. And so the ancient code of Hammurabi says things like, if a man take a wife... And she bear him no children, and he intend to take another wife. If he take this second wife and bring her into the house, this second wife shall not be allowed equality with his wife. Or another law from Hammurabi. If a man take a wife, and she give this man a maidservant as wife, and she bear him children, then this maid assume equality with the wife, Because she has borne him children, her master shall not sell her for money, but he may keep her as a slave, reckoning her among the maidservants. Another ancient law code from Mesopotamia even made provisions as to how the children of a prostitute could become legitimate heirs if a man's wife did not bear him any children. And So this type of polygamy and concubinage was in the cultural air, and it was accepted that the children of such unions could become lawful Heirs of their fathers. And so, in this sense, this is not nearly quite so far outside the box for them as it is for us. And you see further prevalence of uh, the evidence of further prevalence of this kind of thinking in the case of Jacob, Genesis 30. When Rachel saw that she couldn't have children, she did the same thing, right? She gave her maid Bilhah to Jacob so that she too might have children. And likewise, when Leah stopped bearing children, she gave her maid to Jacob. There was some commonality to this and was certainly accepted culturally. And not only was it accepted culturally, I think we also need to take into account the fact that we as believers today have, I think, a somewhat clearer picture for God's intention and designs for marriage than The patriarchs did. At the very least, we have more written revelation from God, right? We have a book. They didn't have a book. They had the prophetic word verbally spoken, but they didn't have a book written down. And we have also the express teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I say none of what I have said here to excuse Abram's behavior in any way. doesn't excuse it. But simply to help us recognize that he might not have been quite so clear on some things As we are. And we should also notice here that it was not Abram who took the first step in this. This was Sarai's idea. Just as it would later be the women, Leah and Rachel, who gave their maids to Jacob, so here it was Sarai's move to set these events in motion. The text explicitly says that Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Sarai's idea, she suggested it, Abram said, okay. He took Hagar to be his wife with the hope and intention of producing the son of promise through her. God had promised a son from your own body. This wasn't working out with Sarah, so they were going to try something else. And Hagar did indeed conceive, and chaos broke loose. Hagar becomes uppity and proud because she had conceived a child, whereas Sarah had not. Sarah tries to put the blame on Abram, even calling God uh, toward that end, as seen in her words in verse 5 May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. And when Abram then tells her that Hagar was in her power and that Sarai could do to Hagar whatever she saw fit, Sarai treats Hagar harshly. Now, we don't, we don't know the details of the harsh treatment whether it was demeaning tasks which she gave to Hagar, whether it was verbal abuse or physical beatings or some combination of the three, we, we don't know. But it was harsh treatment, and Hagar took off. And So in the span of six verses, we have three people in a single believing household, and none of them are shining forth just too brightly. Sarai pushes a bad idea towards her husband and then gets upset when it doesn't work out too well. Abram listens to a bad idea from his wife and goes along with it and brings strife into the household that he is supposed to be loving and caring for. Hagar becomes prideful and runs away from her mistress to whom she bore obligation. Obviously, this is not working out well on any account. Now, we can look back and see the missteps, as we should. Obviously, this polygamous tendency was a problem. It was sinful, It's true that we never see an explicit condemnation or an explicit conviction of Old Testament men like Abraham and Jacob and Elkanah, 1 Samuel 1, or David for their polygamy, but nevertheless we see the effects of it in their households. We see the strife here between Hagar and Sarai. We see the strife between Leah and Rachel in the tents of Jacob. We see the strife between Hannah and Penina, 1 Samuel 1. We see... The disasters in the family of King David, from all that I can tell as an outside observer, polygamy brings this kind of strife as a necessary attendant consequence. Family strife, as it were, is bound up in the polygamous package. Our church has supported uh, missionary Steve King for years as uh, a missionary to the Ivory Coast. And as many of you may know, uh, Steve's wife, Gail, never had children and Steve told me that once he was in conversation with a man uh, from the Ivory Coast, and I believe that this man uh, was polygamous, and he asked Steve, well, why don't you just take another wife? And Steve was talking with him about this, and at one point Steve asked the man, he said, let me ask you this, do you have peace in your home? And the man got it. He, he understood, and he said that Steve was a very wise man because he obviously knew there is no peace in polygamy. And so even though there's no direct condemnation of the patriarchs and Old Testament saints on account of their polygamy, it doesn't follow that it was right. We see the bad effects, and we also understand that this runs counter to God's design and intention for marriage from the beginning. To borrow a phrase from our Lord Jesus, though he was applying it to the issue of divorce, we can apply it here as well. It was not so from the beginning. When God made Eve for Adam, God's intention was to make a helper in the singular for Adam. The two were to become one flesh. So if I can borrow the words of Francis Turretin, although the scriptures do not censure polygamy in the patriarchs, it does not follow that it was lawful. And again he says, we live by rules, not by examples, nor are the defects and blemishes of the saints recorded by the sacred writers on that account approved. And so, we get it. This polygamous aspect of things was wrong. They shouldn't have gone in the direction that they did. Now, I could be wrong, but I am just going to throw out as a guess that I probably didn't need to convince any of you of that this morning. Now, there might be some out there in some places who need to be convinced of this. My guess is that for those of us here, we, we get that this morning. But what I may need to convince you of, in some regards, is that a good goal does not justify any means that can be taken to get there not even a godly goal not even a purpose or promise of god may be pursued by any means abram and sarah here were not simply pursuing something that is generally good it's generally good to have children children are a blessing from the from the lord a heritage from the lord the fruit of the womb is a reward and so this is this is good but there's something even more particular going on here. They were pursuing the fulfillment of God's promise. God had promised a son from Abram's body, and they were trying to figure out a practical way of bringing that about. They went about it in the wrong way. But what are some of the ways that you and I may need to be reminded of this, that, that the ends do not justify the means? Well, we need to remember this when it comes to matters of evangelism and church life. Obviously, we want the lost to be saved. As the the hymn says, We long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. We want the lost to be saved. But that does not justify falsifying the, the gospel or doctoring the scriptures so as to suit the tastes of the world. There's a modern proverb that gets tossed around sometimes that says something to the effect of what you win them with is what you keep them with. In other words, if you get people to come to church or get people to profess Christ by means of of entertainment, then it's entertainment that you have to use to, to keep people in church. Or if you get people to come to church or to profess Christ by means of compromising the truth of the word of God or by making a near approach to worldliness, then You'll need to keep that compromise of the truth. You'll need to keep that near approach to worldliness in order to keep those who have come on account of it. There was a time back in the days of World War II when Martin Lloyd-Jones was pastoring in London. And one night at a uh, kind of a a church fellowship discussion kind of meeting, they were uh, discussing ways that they might boost church attendance and I guess, uh, different Things were were being discussed, and Lloyd-Jones at one point said that he knew of a way that they could have every seat in the church filled. People said, tell us, we'll do it, and Lloyd-Jones said that if they, they ran a notice in the Times in the newspaper that he would appear in the pulpit the following Sunday in a bathing suit, they could pack out church. And uh, at least according to the account I read, after Lloyd-Jones had said that, there was a a moment of shocked silence that followed. The the people understood this this is out of bounds. You don't try to get people to come to church by having your pastor in a bathing suit. Now, 80 years ago, that might have gotten up a crowd to see a pastor in a church in a bathing suit. Nowadays, I'm not sure I'm not sure that even that would, uh, would do it. But, but you see the point. The point is that even a good goal, getting people to come to church to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel, that doesn't justify any means that we can take to get there. And therefore Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 2-4, We have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this likewise applies in the realm of personal honesty. We may sometimes think that it is to our personal advantage either to embellish the truth, to somehow serve to our advantage, or to hide some relevant part of the truth that would be damaging to us if it were known. And so there's the the resume padding on the one hand where you add in some stuff into your resume that really has no business there because you really didn't do it. And then there's the tendency to keep hidden those things about us that are true but would make us appear in a bad light. Now, let me be clear, I'm not saying that honesty requires us to tell everyone every wrong thing that we've ever done not at all but i am saying that when we are required to give pertinent relevant and reasonable information to someone we need to tell the truth even when that truth is not particularly flattering to us the good end of seeking to further our own personal interests does not justify the means of dishonesty and we could we could surely go on Just ask the question, does God want me to better myself? That's what my coworker asked, right? Well, God certainly does want you to better yourself, at least in the sense of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, at least in the sense of being more holy, growing in respect to salvation. But he certainly doesn't want you to better yourself in your outward circumstances. It means that you have to lie or steal or break the law in order to get ahead. What are some other questions we might ask? Does God want me to be joyful? Does God want me to have peace? Does God want me to be content? Does God want me to whatever? Well, the answer to the questions as stated may be yes. Certainly it is to those questions I just asked. God does want you to be joyful. He certainly does want you to have peace. He certainly does want you to be content. But again, not at any price. God wants you to be content, but he wants you to be content with what you have. Hebrews thirteen five. God wants you to be joyful, but you don't get to dictate the conditions or decide the terms under which you can rejoice or will rejoice and then set out to establish those conditions. Now, if you can improve your outward and earthly circumstances in such a way that it is in, in accordance with God's will, that's great. Do it. This morning we read those words of, of Paul's counsel to those who were slaves in 1 Corinthians 7 and how he said to them that if they were able to gain their freedom, do it. But he said, if not, if you're not able to do that, don't worry about it. Whether we're slaves or free, we still have to rejoice in the Lord. and We have to rejoice always. But what we can't do is to say, all right, God commands me to rejoice God desires that I have peace. God commands me to be content. Well, all right, here's what I need to do in order to make that a reality. And then go out and sin against God's expressed commandments and thereby violate his will. Now, God wanted Abraham to have a son, an heir. He promised it to Abram. But this clearly was not the way to bring it about. And even so it is with us. When we set out to do what is good, or when we set out to do what is good for others, we must always have an eye towards the will of God. Because disobeying God is never the way to get ahead. Disobeying God is never the way to help yourself or to help others. It will only make things worse. The question to ask is never simply, how can I get out of this mess? It might be a worthwhile question to ask, but we need to ask more. How can I get out of this mess in a way that's faithful to God? How can I honor Christ in this difficult situation? And this is true even in the worst of times and even in the most difficult and perplexing of circumstances. And that now brings us then to our second point, which is submit to the Lord even in difficult circumstances. Now this is what Abram and Sarai should have done at the outset of this chapter, submitting to the Lord in difficult circumstances, and they failed to do it. And this is what Hagar herself should have done under the harsh treatment of Sarai. But instead, she ran away, and the Lord commanded her to return, as we see in, in verses 7 and following. Now, we're, we're told there uh, concerning Hagar, uh, verse 7, that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. Now, from the land of Canaan, Shur is is on the way back down to Egypt. And so remember, Hagar is an Egyptian, so it appears that she is, is headed back to her homeland. And the angel of the Lord addresses her as Hagar, Sarai's maid, in verse 8, and then questions her about where she's come from and, and where she's going. And Hagar answers truthfully, and the angel of the Lord tells her to return to Sarai. And to submit to her. Now, this resembles the word of the Lord through the Apostle Peter when he said, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now, Hagar here was a servant who was suffering under a legitimate authority in her life. And far from saying that the injustice of the situation and the suffering that she had endured somehow nullified whatever authority Sarai may have had over her and made her flight justifiable, The angel of the Lord commanded her to return to Sarai. Hagar had to submit herself to the Lord, and that meant, in this case, submitting herself to Sarai, even under the circumstances that she faced. Now, before we move on, we do well to consider for a moment just who this angel is. This is the first mention in Scripture of an angel, at least in the sense that it's the first usage of the word. But what we find in the Old Testament is that the word angel is not always used in designation of the same person. Sometimes it is used in reference to the holy angels, uh, such as who, uh, those who, in the words of Hebrews 1.14, are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Sometimes, however, what we find is that in particular passages, the angel of the Lord is actually the Lord himself. And so just think of Malachi 3.1, for instance, where we read, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, or the angel of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. The Lord whom the people sought said that he would be coming to his temple. And he's referred to in a parallelism as the the messenger of the covenant, or the, the angel of the covenant. This angel is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Likewise, in Judges chapter 2, we read of the angel of the Lord coming to the Israelites and speaking to them about their failure to take the promised land, announcing their failure to them. But given the way in which the angel speaks, it's clear that this is not simply a ministering spirit, but this is the Lord himself That angel says there in Judges 2, I brought you up out of Egypt. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And so on. And likewise here in Genesis 16, Moses tells us in verse 13 that Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. And she said, have I even remained alive after seeing him? It was thus the Lord himself who was speaking to her, not merely one of the holy angels, not merely one of the ministering spirits. And this is seen even in the content of what the angel said to Hagar. We read there in verse 10 that he said, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Now, it's not the prerogative of Gabriel or Michael or any other member of the heavenly host to make such a promise in the first person. I will greatly multiply your descendants. This is the kind of promise which the Lord makes. All in all, it seems that this angel of the Lord who appeared to Hagar is none other than the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Son of God. And thus, the Lord who appeared to Hagar told her what she must do and promised that her descendants would be too numerous to count. Verse 11, he tells her what her child would be... Uh, would be named, he'd be named Ishmael, and that the Lord had given heed to her affliction. And then in verse 12, he tells her what kind of a son he would be, a wild donkey of a man, that everyone's hand would be against him and that his hand would be against everyone else. John Gill's comment on this was that Ishmael would be wild, fierce, untamed, not subject to a yoke and impatient of it. Such was Ishmael, and such are his posterity, who never could be subdued or brought into bondage, neither by the Assyrians, nor by the Medes and the Persians, nor by the Greeks, nor Romans, nor any other people. These people have always been free and never in bondage. The Lord saw Hagar, as we see here, and was concerned about her affliction. In verse 13, Hagar even calls the name of the Lord, you are a God who... Sees, And then the well at that place, the spring, is called Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of him that lives and sees. And that can be either applied to the Lord who lives and saw Hagar, or it could be applied to Hagar who saw the Lord and yet lived to tell about it. And though the text of the chapter does not explicitly say in these words, Hagar returned to Abram and to her mistress Sarai, She clearly did. That's implied clearly in verses 15 and 16. She bore her son to Abram. Abram names him Ishmael. She clearly did go back, and the subsequent chapters of Genesis bear this out. It is true that she was eventually sent away, and Lord willing, we'll talk about that in the future, but for now, she was sent back home, and she went back home. Now, the circumstances were difficult. A big mess had been made by all involved. Abram and Sarai were the chief actors and instigators of the mess, but Hagar bears blame for despising Sarai after she conceived. It was a mess all around, but there was no going back. There was no way to turn back the clock and undo the damage that was done. Damage had already been done. Abram had already taken Hagar as a wife. Hagar had already conceived. Hagar had already upset Sarai and damaged their relationship. There's no way to go back, no way to undo any of those things. It would have been better if none of those things had happened, but they did happen. So what now? What now? Well, they all had to do the best that they could and submit themselves to the Lord in their circumstances. For Hagar, that meant the need to return, to submit to Sarai, to put an end to the haughtiness. Abram needed to do the best he can to try to keep peace in his household, Sarai needed to put a good face on it and try to get along with Hagar. After all, this was, this was her idea. She was, in this way, reaping what she had sown. Now, life gets messy. Sometimes this is our fault. Sometimes the fault lies with others. Often, and I think most often, the messes in which we find ourselves are a combination of the two, both our faults and sins, and the faults and sins of others. Calvin wisely said that out of a hundred disputes which occur among men, it will be very difficult to find one in which both parties are not at fault. It is true that one will always make a better case than the other as it deals with the main cause, but unfortunately there are many inconsistencies and minor attendant circumstances. And isn't that the truth? Those of you who been around children, parents, or, or otherwise, have you ever had to, to step in and referee a dispute among small children? Now, sometimes the case is clear that there's someone who is clearly in the right, someone who is clearly in the wrong. It's very easy. But often, you can kind of see both sides of it, can't you? You can see the one kid did this, the other kid did this, and back and forth they went, and there's some wrong on both sides. And this is often the case with grown-ups as well, isn't it? Again, one may make a better case as it deals with the main cause, but there are many minor attendant circumstances, many other things that, that get mixed up in the mess. But whether the mess was made by us or by someone else or by a combination of the two, we still have to submit to the Lord in the circumstances as they are and then seek to move Forward and be faithful in that, and that can be hard. Now, can you imagine here for for Hagar, the thoughts and the fears, or at least the concerns that were racing through her mind as she starts taking those first steps back to the encampment of Abram? But she did it. She submitted herself to the Lord. It probably would have been very easy for her to come up with a lot of sensible reasons or excuses. As to why running away, continuing on the way to Egypt would have been a much better idea and why she would have been justified in doing that rather than obeying the Lord's command. She could have come up with a lot of wise reasons. At least wise as it seemed to her to go on to Egypt and why it looked foolish to obey the Lord. She obeyed the Lord. And the word of God demands the same from you and me. And whatever our circumstances are, however we got there, We need to submit ourselves to the Lord's commands and to the Lord's providential dealings with us. Whether our troubles have come upon us innocently, as Job's did, or whether our troubles have come to us because of sin, as they did to Abram and Sarai and Hagar, one way or the other, we have to submit ourselves to the Lord. We have to commit our way to Him. And we must remember that all of His commandments are for our good. And that our circumstances are all in his hands and under his control. We have to remember that if we belong to Christ, the battle is the Lord's. That if we belong to Christ, all of the difficult circumstances that we face, as painful as they are, are actually working together for our good. Now I know it doesn't seem like that a lot of times, but they are. Even when others intend their actions against us for evil, God still intends them for good. And under God's wise and guiding hand, it will be good. So as for you, and as for me, we have to keep on doing the next right thing. Keep on trusting God, keep on obeying Him. And indeed, trusting the Lord is where we must begin. We must come to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and come to Him in faith. As we've seen here, there's plenty of sin to go around in all directions. And ultimately, that's why our troubles come to us, because of sin. Sometimes because of our own sin, sometimes because of the sins of others, sometimes circumstances are what they are because we're living in a world that's tainted by sin and fallen and under the curse. And even when our problems are not directly caused by our own sins, we still have plenty of our own sins from which we need to repent and for which we need to seek forgiveness. Because ultimately we're going to die and we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what we need on that day, what we need on this day, is forgiveness. We need forgiveness for all of the times when we have not submitted ourselves to the Lord, for all of the times that we did think that the ends justified the means, for all of the things that we shouldn't have done, that we did do, for all the things that we didn't do that we should have done. And the only way to find forgiveness and reconciliation with God is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world and was the ultimate answer to the promise that God had given to Abram. God's great plan in promising a son to Abram was ultimately to bring his Messiah, his Christ, into the world. And praise be to God that he did keep this promise to Abram. That he gave Abram, the son of promise, Isaac. And through Isaac came Jacob. And through Jacob came the nation of Israel. And our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, is descended from that nation. And now our Lord Jesus is the son of God and son of man who was born to save his people from their sins. And he did that by going to the cross By dying for sinners and by rising again on the third day. And it's only through him that we can be reconciled to God. And this is the way to begin. Submitting ourselves to God. If you have never done so, this is the way to begin. Let's begin by trusting Christ. And let me say also, this is the way to continue. For those of you who already have submitted yourself to Christ and trusted in him, this is the way to continue. Keep trusting in Christ. The reality is that in this world we are never done submitting ourselves to God because each day presents us both with new opportunities and new challenges and difficulties and we need to continue trusting and obeying submitting ourselves to the Lord but the good news is that for all who are in Christ we do not labor and strive in this in our own strength we labor by the grace of God and by the strength provided by the Holy Spirit and we can count on the words of Deuteronomy 33:27, that they are still as true for us as they were in the day that they were spoken. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The God who saw, the God who saw Hagar, and was concerned about her. The God of Beer Roy, still sees and knows and cares for His people. And that's good news, so let's look to him today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the great truth that you are a God who sees, that you see us, that you care for us, that you love us. We are thankful for the manifestation of that love through Christ. We're thankful for the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abram, which ultimately culminated and the coming of Christ into the world and we uh, we are thankful for Christ and the redemption that is in him and Lord we ask that you would strengthen us that we would that we would trust you and that we would submit ourselves to you in all conditions and all circumstances and that we would walk with you in faith in hope and in humility and we pray this in Jesus name amen